Hello, and welcome to the first edition of Occupied Thoughts, Realities of Israel, Palestine, and Peace, a new podcast from the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Peter Beinart, a fellow of FMEP, here to kick off this new podcast series in which FMEP guests will take a deep dive into issues related to Israel, Palestine, and the occupation that just reached its 50th year. The Foundation for Middle East Peace is a grant-making organization supporting Israeli, Palestinian, and U.S. organizations working to end the occupation and challenge illiberal policies related to occupation. The foundation also produces its own resources, including a weekly legislative roundup covering all things related to Israel and the Middle East in the U.S. Congress, and a weekly report on Israeli settlement activity. You can find all of that and more on our website, fmep.org. Our guest today is the diplomatic world's go-to expert on all things Jerusalem, Danny Seideman. Danny has been fighting to preserve the very possibility of the two-state solution in Jerusalem for decades. He is a lawyer who has argued before the Israeli Supreme Court, a legendary tour guide of Jerusalem's geopolitical terrain, and has briefed all the foreign diplomats you could possibly name. Danny is the founder and director of Terrestrial Jerusalem, which tracks developments in Jerusalem that could impact either the political process or permanent status options, destabilize the city, or spark violence, or create a humanitarian crisis. Welcome, Danny, and thanks for being our first guest. Thank you. Starting this podcast by tackling the topic of Jerusalem is a bit opposite of how peace negotiations typically proceed. Jerusalem has always been an issue that is dealt with at the very last moment. But there's a logic to starting with Jerusalem. It's a major focal part in the narrative of conflict that has unfolded since 1967, when Israel surprised the world by defeating Arab armies in the Six-Day War and soon after annexed East Jerusalem. To understand how occupation works, what the grievances are on both sides, how religion, nationalism, regional interests, and blatant politicking conspire to make a peace deal historically out of reach, we need to look no further than Jerusalem. So, Danny, you've just arrived from Jerusalem. We're taping this in New York. I thought I would start by asking you, what uh, is the situation politically in the city today? What, what, what's the situation like on the street? Well, Today, we're commemorating 50 years since the Six-Day War and the dissonance between Israel and much of the rest of the world on this issue is deafening. Israel is celebrating um, 50 years to the reunification of the city and most of the rest of the world is commemorating 50 years of occupation, the longest occupation in modern history. Um, the 1967 war gave birth to an article of faith for very understandable reasons. Um, I'm not immune uh, to that article of faith. Um, and that article of faith is Jerusalem is the undivided capital of Israel that will never be redivided, which is one word and a noun. And with all my cynicism, um, as somebody who made Aliyah a month before the Yom Kippur War, I'm probably among the last of the immigrants uh, who made Aliyah to Israel, inspired by the 1967 war. Um, Fifty years on, if we examine the realities on the ground in Jerusalem, we can see how hollow that article of faith is. Um, I believe it was condemned to be a, hard, a, a hollow article of faith from the get-go. It was inevitable. Um, uh, however, 50 years on, it is a very, very problematic reality. Uh, Jerusalem in 1967, uh, once, quote-unquote, reunited, was already a binational city. 
But the Palestinian sector of the population was then a quarter of the population. Today, it's 37% of the population. And it is a permanently politically disempowered part of the population. Um, the Palestinians of East Jerusalem, unlike the Palestinian citizens of Israel, are not Israeli. They're not Israeli citizens. They don't have the right to vote in national elections. They don't have Israeli passports. And there's no significant Israeli component of their identity. Can I just stop you there? Palestinian citizens of East Jerusalem, though, do have the right to apply for Israeli citizenship, right? Uh, you will be told by Hasbaristas. Yes. That they Maybe have, you should explain what Hasbaristas has, are. Hasbarista, Hasbara is it's our, not someone who serves you your coffee. Uh, no. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hasbarista is somebody who uh, engages in politicized PR um, for the state of Israel and its interests. You will be told that the Palestinians have the right to become citizens. Urban legend. Incorrect. They have the right to apply. We have the right to say no. We meaning the Israeli government. They don't apply and we say no. There have been upwards of 600,000 Palestinians who have lived and died in Jerusalem since 67. Of them, 14,000 applied, uh, 5,500 received citizenship infinitesimally small. The numbers have not changed significantly. The number of applications have risen marginally and plummeted in numbers. We extend 50 or 60 um, um, applications uh, every year. Jerusalem is a binational city. It is a binational city at the epicenter of a global, regional, and domestic conflict where the West and the Arab world meet up where the tectonic plates of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam crush up against each other, and you have two national collectives, one of which has the power politically to shape their lives, and the other whom are not powerless or completely powerless. That is, over time, an unsustainable reality and informs everything in Jerusalem. Jerusalem remains the quintessential contested city. Uh, For years, I have been saying uh, every Republican presidential candidate and many Democrats will promise to move the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Uh, But none will be so irresponsible as president to actually move the embassy. I no longer vouch for the relative responsibility or irresponsibility of American presidents. But President Trump has not moved the embassy. It may, it's not over yet. It may happen in December. If he does, it will not unite the city. The United States will follow Israel into isolation on this issue and disqualify itself as, in, as any potential broker in Israel-Palestine peacemaking. I want to just back up on, 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 a, on a couple of things. Can you talk a little bit about why the United States originally ha- decided not to put its embassy in Jerusalem, what the, what the rationale for that is, and, um, and t- I'll talk a little more about what you think the consequences of changing that. And just by, by the way, are there any uh, countries none. that none, no country has? Its, not even in West Jerusalem. Not a single foreign country has not an embassy one. in West Jerusalem. Not one. So, what was the original uh, 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 kind of articul- you know, theory behind this decision to stay in Tel Aviv, and what do you think the consequences? Well, of the first of all, this reflects a broad-based international consensus. 
uh, under the partition plan, which created Israel and was to have created an Arab-Palestinian state, Jerusalem was to have been part of neither state. It was to have got to be a corpus separatum, an international city or special regime. That did not come about, and Jerusalem became a politically, a, a, a militarily divided city. West Jerusalem, legitimately under Israeli control. East Jerusalem, occupied by Jordan between 1949 and 1967. So from the, the, the international perspective, Israel's presence in West Jerusalem is legitimate and Israel's presence in East Jerusalem is occupation. Having said that, no country has abandoned formally um, the corpus separatum. Now, that may sound like the Flat Earth Society. What are you smoking? This is not 1948 or 1949, but it reflects a truth that I believe is important, that the status of Jerusalem will be de determined um, uh, by international recognition of an agreement. Pending that, there is a status quo. Jerusalem, Israel's presence in Jerusalem may be legitimate. Its status as the capital of Israel will be achieved only when there will be a permanent status agreement between Israelis and Palestinians, and not one day before. Now, this is something that Israel agreed to. We agreed to it not only in the Armistice Agreement in 1949, we agreed to it in the Oslo Agreements, because the Oslo Accords say Jerusalem is a permanent status issue to be resolved in negotiations, not East Jerusalem. So that's the principled approach. The pragmatic one is Israelis and Palestinians need to be incentivized to conclude this uh, conflict in an agreement. And one of the major incentives for Israel is you want and richly deserve your capital in Jerusalem. That will happen the day after a Palestinian embassy will open in Israeli Jerusalem and an Israeli embassy will open in Al-Quds, the capital of an independent Palestinian state. And that is a mechanism that the international community does not want to waive. I want to talk a little more about something you mentioned earlier, which was the, the status of Palestinians in East Jerusalem compared to Palestinian citizens of Israel inside mm -hmm. the Green Line compared to Palestinians who live in the West Bank. So I wanted you to just talk a, a little bit about the legal differences about the status of those three different groups of Palestinians, but then also talk practically about what is what is the life of a Palestinian citizen of East Jerusalem like in terms of ability to travel, legal regimes, services, in comparison to those two other groups, Palestinians who live inside Israel proper and Palestinians who live in the West Bank but not mm -hmm. in East Jerusalem. Okay. Um, however problematic the status of the Palestinian citizens of Israel may be, there is really. Uh, on paper and more than on paper. Um, they have the right to vote and to be elected. Uh, they, are, they have the same inalienable rights of citizenship of every Israeli, an Israeli passport. There are, there's a large amount of discrimination, which I do not paper over, but this goes beyond the formalities. Mm. Uh, the Palestinian citizens of Israel have an Israeli component to their identity. Most, speak, most speak Hebrew. Most speak Hebrew, but more than that, Rad Salah, who is not a member of the World Zionist Organization, mm -hmm. he's the leader of the nastier wing, the northern branch of the Islamic movement. He plays chess on an Israeli chessboard. Um, 
when you go to the West Bank, you're talking about military occupation. I'm not talking about those under the Palestinian Authority. Certainly those. Fairly clear. You are not a citizen. There's no aspiration of citizenship. I have met one sovereign in my life. His name is Nitsan Alone. He was the commander of the Central Command under international law. He's the sovereign. In, East, in the West Bank. In the West Bank. In East Jerusalem, we have invented a status called permanent resident. You are not a citizen. You may not vote. You can you can vote in municipal in elections. municipal elections, but you can't become mayor. Now, um, our mayor, the illustrious Nir Barkat, um, who is humble even by Israeli standards, <laughs> says. Um, everybody elected my mayor. I'm the father. This is a quote of all of the residents of Jerusalem. Well, I'm a nudnik. I check. In the last elections, there were more than 157,000 Palestinians with the right to vote. Of them, 1,101 cast a ballot. Of them, 561 voted for Mayor Barkat. By the way, I know the Mishpocha, find the Mishpocha, wonderful people, work with the municipality. 561 votes out of 157,000, you represent everybody. They don't vote because they're saying, we do not barter in our national identity. We're not Israeli, and we're not going to be domesticated Palestinians in your fantasy world of United Jerusalem. So, now, do the Palestinians have rights in Jerusalem? Yes. They have alienable rights, not inalienable rights. Well, first of all, there's an ironclad law of politics. Politicians will never allocate resources, money, time, entitlements to people who can't or won't vote. So the Palestinians are 37% of the population. They get 12% of the budget. If you go into East Jerusalem, you see it is borderline third world as opposed to modern West Jerusalem. But beyond that, you can stay in Jerusalem unless we really want you out. <laughs> um, if you go to medical school for seven years, you can be deprived of your residency rights. You mean if you leave the city for seven if you years? you leave the city, if you transfer the center of your life elsewhere. Uh, for seven years? For seven years. If your property, if, uh, um, your property rights are secure, unless we really want your property, and then they're not secure. Israel has expropriated 33% of the privately owned land in East Jerusalem overwhelmingly from Palestinians to build 55,000 houses for Israelis, but 600 now, for... In a, Palest a Palestinian citizen would have the right to go to, to, to sue in an Israeli court under those circumstances. A Palestinian in the West Bank would not generally, but what about a Palestinian in East Jerusalem? Could, could, can, you, can, you go to, can you try to avail yourself of the Israeli legal system? Absolutely. Um, and, but let me give you an example. But, um, when Har Choma, which is the last large expropriation, took place, I filed suit on behalf of the residents of Umtuba and Beit Sahur, uh, challenging the expropriation. Uh, my argument was very simple. Why is it that the Palestinians are always the victims of expropriation? They're always the public from whom the land is being expropriated and never the sector for whom the construction is taking place. That is not a violation of etiquette. That is illegal discrimination based on national affiliation. Um, I got a wonderful hearing from the Supreme Court and was shown the door. Uh, the suit was rejected because the Israeli Supreme Court knows 
perhaps correctly, that this is a radioactive issue in Israeli society, just as the legality of Guantanamo is radioactive in the United States or the legality of um, the Vietnam War. I have filed 25 suits to the Israeli Supreme Court on Jerusalem-related issues, often on behalf of the Palestinian residents. I receive a lot of tea and sympathy, very little judicial relief. Sometimes the courts will go out of their way to help me ameliorate some of the manifestations of occupation. Rarely will they write a verdict. It's just too radioactive. So in the West Bank, you have a Palestinian authority that is under Israeli control ultimately, but is delivering services um, so Palestinians may be interacting with Palestinian civil servants or Palestinian policemen. In What about in East Jerusalem? Who are the are, – are, do you have Palestinian police? Or do you have – who is delivering the services? What is the relationship between – the Palestinians and 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 the Israel and the and the city government in a kind of day to day way. Uh, services are meager. Uh, they're thin, and there are a hundred thousand Palestinians living inside the city, but on the West Bank side of the separation barrier, where the services completely collapse. So glad, the separation barrier actually runs through, through Jerusalem. The city. We, that we will right. come to the supposedly undivided, undivided right. the undivided city. Um, there's a shortfall, for example, of 2,000 classrooms uh, in East Jerusalem, uh, publicly acknowledged. We don't build classrooms. Is there a greater gift that Israel could give the Hamas than an uneducated Palestinian population? No. There has never been uh, a member of any of the Palestinian, of the planning boards, whether governmental or municipal in Jerusalem, who is Palestinian. There has never been a senior civil servant in the Jerusalem municipality. You've had a handful of mid-level civil servants. So you will have a couple of people in the planning department. Um, I would say that until recently, I would describe the West Bank as a military occupation and uh, the Israeli rule in East Jerusalem as a colonial occupation. That's changing. And um, occupation, which initially was benign in many ways, a disease in remission. If ever there was an enlightened occupier, which I consider to be an oxymoron, it was Teddy Kolick, who was the architect of Israeli occupation, and on the other hand, full of contradictions, a genuine humanist. We are now seeing an unapologetic occupation, which I don't, I can only use the word, is now metastasizing and becoming more aggressive and more resembling the military occupation of the West Bank. And in terms of the identity of Palestinians in East Jerusalem, uh, the way they see themselves, I, uh, um, again, in, con in contrast to um, is the is there is there a particular distinct Palestinian Jerusalem identity that's distinguished from Palestinians in the West Bank and Palestinians inside Israel? Could you tell by someone's accent? Do, do, how much movement is there between? Uh, obviously, if you're a Palestinian citizen, uh, if you're a Palestinian resident in Jerusalem, you can't become you can't easily just move to Haifa and and live inside the Green Line. But how much interaction back and forth is there between Palestinians in East Jerusalem and Palestinians in the West okay. Bank? Uh, let's begin with the economy because it's an allegory for the situation at, at large. The Palestinians of East Jerusalem earn a fraction of what 
Israelis in West Jerusalem, and Israelis in West Jerusalem are the most impoverished mm. in, in the country. Uh, we don't know the precise figures because uh, being committed to this non-existent United Jerusalem, we never distinguish between East and West, and so it's a black hole in space precisely. A quarter. Now, that doesn't mean that they're in abject poverty. Uh, there is poverty, but the cost of living is significantly lower. Go to the other side of the municipal limit, the standard of living of the Palestinian living in the West Bank is a quarter of that of East Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So East Jerusalem is the lock in the canal between the disparate economies. Mm -hmm. um, the Palestinians of East Jerusalem have family ties both in Israel and in the West Bank. But let's see where the major differences are. In 2007, I believe, Olmert's government allocated 8 billion shekel to build classrooms for the disadvantaged sectors in Israel, ultra-Orthodox and Arab. And I went to the Arab members of Knesset and said, I want to get a chunk of this money to build classrooms for my Lansman, the Palestinians of East Jerusalem. And their response was, what are you talking about? Go to Ramallah. They're not Israeli. We're Israeli. They're Palestinian. Um, this is one of the driving engines. The, the goal of the Palestinian citizen of Israel is to receive an equal share of what Israel has to offer, a fair share, in a way that is compatible with maintaining your national identity as a Palestinian. So the term discrimination is operative. The Palestinians don't want a fair share of Israel. They want done with Israel. You're talking they, about Palestinians in East Jerusalem. Jerusalem. They want to run their own lives. They don't want to live equally in a, in a city shared uh, with Israelis. They want to live independently in their own country. But economically, it, wouldn't it be more beneficial for them to seek citizenship inside Israel, which is a first world country, than to become the wealthiest people in a Palestinian state, which would presumably include the West Bank and Gaza, where people are wildly impoverished? Time and again, I have seen Palestinians take advantage of mm -hmm. the economic benefits mm -hmm. of Israel, never at the expense of bartering with their national identity. Your land is expropriated and you're entitled to uh, uh, compensation. You don't take that compensation because that would say, I agree to the expropriation. Uh, it, it is it is ambiguous. By the way, that's something I identify with. Mm -hmm. My mother never forgave me for moving to Israel because she was a child of the depression. And a sane individual does not voluntarily take a cut in standard of living. She thought I was crazy by moving to Israel. Uh, I would prefer living among my own in a lower standard of living than living here in New York, my personal quirk. Now, when the Palestinians um, go to Ramallah, um, sometimes they feel they're being treated as Israelis, as the spoiled rich cousin. When they look at the leadership in Ramallah, they say, them? They're almost as contemptuous of the Palestinian leadership as they are of Israeli leadership. You know, uh, I've heard, put Abu Mazen down at Damascus Gate with a seeing-eye dog and a licensed guide. He will not be able to find his way to the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So they will use us as a rhetorical flourish. They don't give a damn about us. 
You mean you're talking about Palestinian residents in East Jerusalem talking about the Palestinian Absolutely. leadership and the West and, Bank? And that comes to uh, an, another aspect of uh, your original question, what's the situation in East Jerusalem? East Jerusalem, Jerusalem is more divided today than at any point since 67. The only place it's an undivided city is in the fertile imaginations of right-wing ideologues, whether in the United States or our prime minister or our mayor. I spent the entire second intifada with my buddies in East Jerusalem without any problem. I can't go into 90% of East Jerusalem today without accepting physical risks. I've already taken a rock to the head. Uh, the, across the street from my office, Aroma Cafe, the proprietor, who is Israeli, won't let the baristas go out at night after dark to the dumpster alone because there are vigilantes on the streets of Jerusalem hunting Palestinians. Uh, the border between Israel and Palestine exists. Now, for the Palestinians, this is particularly devastating and has given rise to a popular uprising, the likes of which we haven't seen since 1967. During the last three years, July 1, 2014, Israel has arrested almost 10% of the Palestinian boys between the ages of 12 and 18. That is a staggering number in East Jerusalem, a staggering number. Now, these are good kids. They're not being driven into a frenzy by this hyper-charismatic rock star Abu Mazen. <laughs> um, what's in back of it? And what's in back of it is we are have no hope. We have no future. We are treated by Israel as the enemy, not even a tolerated minority. A collective punishment, which in the past was episodic, is now systemic. We are alienated from the Palestinian leadership in Ramallah. We are cut off by a wall physically from the West Bank. Um, the... Arab world will promise hundreds of millions annually to save Arab Jerusalem and not penny, one penny will um, materialize. They are in open revolt because under Israeli rule, Palestinian lives matter very little if they matter at all, and it's getting worse. So I want to ask you a question that um, I've been asked, and um, uh, I, I think, suspect you and I are on the same side of this question, but I want to explain how you think it through. Someone hears you saying, talking about the violence and talking about the fact that it's coming in large measure because people have no hope, and looks at Palestinian politics and says, as far as they can tell, there's one thing that's giving Palestinians some degree of hope, at least Palestinians in the United States. If you say, what gives you hope? They're general, they usually answer with three letters, BDS. That's what gives them hope. Um, uh, um, they feel like it's nonviolent. They think it's bringing Palestinians together. It's speaking in the language of equality, international law, yada, yada, yada. Um, you want to give pa people, uh, Palestinians hope because you don't want Palestinians to turn to violence. Um, uh, so why not get on board that? You know, I have to tell you that my position on this has changed over time. And uh, it may be still in, um, in motion, okay? Let me begin by telling you about some of my conversations with the uninitiated Israelis with whom I'm speaking. Um, and under certain circumstances, it's a bit like telling somebody, you know, uh, I have bad news for you. Your family has been doing you a great disservice. They've been hiding it from you. You have cancer, uh, and that's bad, and you're going to die unless you undergo uh, radical surgery and a strict regimen 
of chemotherapy. Now, if you do that, you'll live. But um, instead of um, uh, sending you to rehab, your rich uncle has been feeding uh, your crack addiction, if I'm mixing metaphors. Right, right, right. Um, I think it was Nabil Shatha once said, why are settlements like water? They expand when frozen. Israel has <laughs> been given a pass, has been held unaccountable um, um, to things that violate uh, the values and the interests of its allies and policies which are self-destructive. By turning a blind eye to that, the Friends of Israel have been doing a grave disservice to Israel. Israel needs to be held accountable in a measured way. Now, some in the BDS movement, it's not a precisely defined term, see the issue of Israel being resolved not when occupation ends, but when I end, when the country I love ends. Um, I consider those people to be my enemy. Uh, they seek my destruction. Now, some will offer this in a manner that talks about one state that's being pursued in good faith. I have a bitter disagreement with them. They're not my enemy. But there is an element of in BDS among some mm -hmm. that want the mm -hmm. end of Israel. Um, I reject that. Mm -hmm. I fully embrace holding Israel accountable for occupation, settlements, and anything related to it. A year ago, I, I, I briefed all of the EU ambassadors to the European Union. And you walk in and you can see a schism. Um, the Western and Central European countries very much critically engaging Israel. And many in the room, um, perhaps because of the vulnerability that they sense an identification with Israel, whether it's Poland, Czechoslovakia, etc. We're not going to criticize Israel. The Eastern Europeans. Yeah. And you think it's and not, it's, it's ideological because they... I, I think it's historical as well. The, the, oh, they the feel the guilt of the... It's guilt, but it's also identification with the vulnerability of an embattled country, which I can understand. And I don't want to disavow them of that. But I said to them, I encourage you to support Israel. The West Bank is not Israel. Settlements are not Israel. Your support of Israel should end at the green line. And it's not only boycotting settlement products. It is holding accountable any individual or organization that is actively complicit in the occupation. This is not about Israel bashing. This is about holding Israel to the standard that's widely accepted in the international community. And those who are calling for a measured engagement on this, including boycott of occupation, are doing a great service to Israel and its long-term longevity. Right. The, 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 people in the people in the BDS movement would say <coughs> the notion that you can, and I, the motion that you can that you can boycott Israel, that you can boycott the settlements, but not, not boycott Israel is a fiction because the, the settlements don't build themselves. They're built by the Israeli government and the, and the, and the institutions that, the powerful institutions that support settlements also operate inside the Green Line. Again, I speak as, as your compatriot and someone who also believes in boycotting settlements but does not want to boycott Israel. And yet the argument that I hear is this, is an, this, this distinction can't actually be made. I think that there's some validity to that argument. 
Um, uh, but let me give you, I, and I'm not saying the boycotting settlements. Let mm. me give you an example where I, I'm way out there. My wife is a banker, and she probably will kill me for saying this. Um, all of the Israeli banks are actively complicit in occupation. They're giving construction loans. They're financing. They have branches in Maled Dumim. Now, I don't want to destroy the Israeli banking system, but I also don't think that the world should give us a pass on this. I would welcome a situation where we would hear from the world, your banks have branches in London, Paris, and Geneva. You're more than welcome. But you are also engaged in policies which we find reprehensible morally and contrary to our interests. We're not about punishing you. You've got two years or three years to disengage from the West Bank, and you will be welcome to continue to do business in Europe. Should you fail to do so, we were going to have to dissociate ourselves from this. This is not punishment. This is accountability. On the other hand, I have public appearances coming up in London, Paris. The day is not far off um, when one of my appearances will be broken up, and it won't come from the Kahana movement. It will come from the left. Uh, and um, the question is, how does this conflict end? Does it end by bludgeoning Israel into submission? No. It ends by holding us accountable in a way that the forces of moderation in Israel and Palestine will have no choice but to confront the realities and decide with some soft coercion, with some help from friends, to end this. This is not going to be coercion. It's going to be telling unpleasant truths. And by boycotting everybody in Israel, you're saying, it doesn't matter what you do. You're doomed to... Israel is not sinning. Israel is a sin. That's not the way we're going to end this conflict. One thing that I find... Um interesting and a little confusing is you're describing a situation in which Palestinians in East Jerusalem are so wedded to being Palestinians, presumably future occupants of the capital of a Palestinian state and not Israelis, that they will not vote in Israeli elections, even though that could clearly influence their lives, right? 37%, uh, they could, if they would vote en masse, they could be part of building coalitions with, with and and win mayor, mayoralties, right? A hundred percent. And and yet in the United States, if you talk to in the Palestinian activist and pro-Palestinian activist community, it is everybody says the two-state solution is dead, and we must think to about a one-state solution. So if you believe in a in the one-state equal secular binational state, it would seem to me that a natural first move towards that would be precisely for to build that in East Jerusalem, and yet the Palestinians in East Jerusalem seem adamantly against that. Explain that contradiction to me. Okay. We, it's like an onion that has mm. to peel, okay? Um, there is a collapse of support for the two-state solution. Among um, Palestinians among in East Palestinians Jerusalem. in general. Right. Uh, there's something of a collapse in Israel because uh, official Israel, a minority of official Israel pays lip service to it, and nobody believes Netanyahu that he supports it. The settlers are not in favor of the two-state solution. And... Uh, when President Trump asked about it, he goes, Dr. Seuss, you know, one state, two state, red state, blue state. I mean, it's, it's you know, okay. Um, I believe that this is a tactical collapse. And it is a function of the despair 24 years after Oslo. And we are not one inch closer to the end of occupation. Khalil Shikaki, um, who is the renowned Palestinian pollster, says, yes, there is 
a serious decline in support. But the minute you see a quickening of the pulse and the two-state solution becomes viable again, the support source and goes back to historical levels. Um, I also think that just as diaspora Jews, committed diaspora Jews, right of center, you know, support of Israel in the American Jewish community is becoming a wholly owned subsidiary of the ideological right in many ways. Right. Uh, it's similar. The Palestinian diaspora is more ideologically committed than many of the Palestinians. I, when I appear, will receive far more abuse as an Israeli in a diaspora Palestinian community than I will in East Jerusalem or in, in the West Bank. We, you know, we know each other. Um Abuse because you support, because uh, you're a Zionist. Because I'm an Israeli and because yeah. you know, we are intimate and familiar enemies, and the, and, and we, which gives us a lot to work with. I want to address the question, is the two-state solution alive or dead? Right. Uh, and to what, if it's dead, what are the implications? First of all, I firmly believe that the greatest existential threat for the Jewish people in this generation is occupation, which also happens to be the greatest existential threat to the Palestinians. Occupation, from my perspective, ends one way. It ends in a border. Um, it doesn't, it can't end in equal rights, not immediately. Um, saying um, the two-state two solution is dead, we need the one state, is a tantamount to saying, from my perspective, Israelis and Palestinians hate them each other too much in order to get divorced. They're going to have to have a successful marriage instead. That defies logic. Now, in order for there to be a two-state solution, you need to create a border. And there's one definitive question as to whether the two-state solution is alive or not. Does Israel have the capacity and the will to relocate the number of settlers necessary to arrive at a border that will be simultaneously acceptable to Israelis and Palestinians. When Netanyahu entered office in 2009, that number was 116,000. Today, it is 100... You're talking about not including East Jerusalem, you're talking about in the West Bank. Including East Jerusalem. Oh, you're talking about All settlers who would need to be removed. Who would need to be removed. So you're assuming Israel's going to be able to annex, what, 2%, 3%? Two, exactly. Okay. Today, that number is 156,000. Mm -hmm. It is going up by five to 10,000 a year. Last year, it was 6,700. If Israel has the capacity of relocating 156,000 settlers, uh, if it has the will, two-state solution's alive. If it doesn't, it's dead. We clearly have the capacity. We absorbed more than a million immigrants from the former Soviet Union, we don't have the will to relocate one settler. In essence, this is a bit like crossing the Pacific in an ocean liner without navigation equipment. There's a line there. It's the international date line. You're going to cross it. It's inevitable. Uh, crossing it is very consequential. One day is yesterday, one side of the line is yesterday, the other side is tomorrow. You're not going to know when you cross it. We're close to that line. Assume for a moment we've crossed the line. Destroying the two-state solution does not create an alternative. Israelis and Palestinians cannot share one society as a solution. We can share one society as a consequence and as a reality. That's what's emerging. The one-state reality is apartheid. Occupation is not a crime when it's temporary. When it's perpetual, it's apartheid. And that is what is emerging. 
and there's no alternative. Now, my opposition or reservation to one-state solution is not ideological. 10 years, 20 years, 50 years after the border goes up, there will be possibilities that we can't imagine today. The day the border goes up, it will begin to unravel in the direction of confederation and perhaps unity. There is no way of beginning that kind of reconciliation before the divorce is completed. And the divorce is completed one way and one way only, a border. But wait a second. If you say your opposition is not ideological, it's Correct. just that you don't think the one-state solution would work, then uh, uh, that you're not a Zionist, right? Doesn't, doesn't being a political Zionist mm. means you mean you believe ideologically in the importance of some kind, however you define it, of a Jewish state, a state that has a special obligation mm -hmm. to protect and represent Jews? My Zionism is, is the right of self-determination for the Jewish people. Um, that the world is a dangerous place. It's doubly and da triply dangerous for Jews, and we need this imperfect mechanism called statehood. Also, I think the world's... But you said that you could accept a one-state solution if it were to work. It, it, and that, that one-state solution would not be if, a Jewish if, state, if, right? If it, no, I wouldn't agree with that, because I do not think that the binary... A primitive binary mechanism of territorial nationalism requires um, ethnically homogeneous states. I think that we are seeing possibly, you know, we're, I think we're in the middle of a global civil war mm -hmm. over this issue mm -hmm. about the unitary, ethnically pure. Mm -hmm. you know, that, that's one of the major fault lines on immigration in the United right. States and right. immigration in Europe. I don't rule out the possibility of having something other than binary uh, um, um, uh, nationalism, some point indefinitely in the future, in a way that would be compatible with the right of self-determination of the Jewish people and the right of self-determination of the Palestinian people. You know, some of my friends on the Israeli left are talking about uh, one homeland, two states, two states, one homeland. I, I never can remember. Um, I, I understand where they're coming from. I don't believe it's possible now. I don't think it's impossible if you were to have a federation or a confederation 20 or 30 years between a Palestinian state and an Israeli state with open borders, not unthinkable after life takes over from the calculus of national struggle, with an immigration policy that allows Palestinians to move to Israel and Israelis to move to Palestine. That has trappings of a one-state solution. I'm not opposed to that. But I don't believe occupation can be ended except by radical surgery, and the radical surgery is a border. So let's talk a little bit about the, the Trump administration. Um, what do you – if you had to guess, what do you think is the most likely scenario over the next year in terms of what the Trump administration does – and how events play themselves out on the ground. I just came from Washington, and one of the keen observers inside of the administration was asked the same question by myself, and the answer was unknowable. Not I don't know, mm. unknowable. Um, I, for me, uh, the inauguration day was a little bit like starting Shiva. Mm -hmm. um, uh, deep trepidation. I watched the settlement movement go into something that you could call a feeding frenzy. Mm -hmm. uh, they were reminiscent of sharks smelling blood. I mean, mm -hmm. this was uh, settler heaven. We're now several months on. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and things are not nearly as bad as we mm-hmm. expected. There have been a few good things. The embassy was not moved, mm-hmm. contrary to all expectations. The president came to Jerusalem and, uh, uh, in spite of all temptation, stayed on script. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he has prioritized a deal. Uh, and there's some good people that are dealing with this issue. Uh, but there's been waffling on the two-state solution. They have not hit anything hard. And if you look across the board at the way that the Trump administration is conducting its foreign policy, it's a cause of grave concern. Um, they will be hitting the hard issues very soon. Uh, this cannot be done on the cheap. There is no gimmick. Uh, there's no sugarcoating that can avoid addressing the core issues. If it's not painful, it's not serious. Painful for both sides. If that doesn't happen, if there's not serious engagement at, with sobriety and sophistication, uh, this is going to fall apart. It's going to fall apart in ways that we cannot possibly imagine what the trajectory will be. This will be the first time in which there's absolutely no political horizon, no cause for hope, where the breaking mechanism of a United States, the United States is unaware of how many bad things the United States stopped simply by being there. That breaking mechanism will be gone. Europe is in disarray. Brexit has destroyed any potential coherence. Uh, coming from within the European Union. We will be entering a chaotic period um, in which Israelis are in clinical denial, sipping cappuccino on the edge of a volcano. Palestinians are in clinical despair, not believing that there is a prospect of anything getting better through political means. I'm deeply concerned. When you you mm. take a lot of people on tours of East Jerusalem, I imagine um, too many, too many. Um, you I imagine you take a lot of Israelis and a lot of American Jews mm. to t- places in East Jerusalem that they've never been before. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested in asking you what the reactions are like, and whether the reactions of American Jews and of Israeli Jews differ when they see those things. Well, something's very interesting. Uh, I want to start with the American Jews. Uh, across the board, whether Israelis or uh, American Jews, nobody walks away unaffected because the visuals are so overpowering and they're so contrary to the mantra and the expectations. And it's, it's, it, you know, and it's, it's a deeply disturbing reality. It's not taking people into the cesspool or the sewers of Paris, but it's, it's very compelling. It's very different from what you expect. Having said that, since the Trump election, I've noticed that there is a change. Uh, the numbers of people from in the American Jewish community that are seeking me out and saying, show us East Jerusalem, are significantly increasing, including federations. Mm-hmm. Two buses of UJA donors uh, on Independence Day, our Independence Day. Didn't happen before. It appears to me that Netanyahu's embrace of Trump is also leading American Jewry to reexamine the way they perceive Netanyahu, his ideology, and the Israel that he's creating. I think we're seeing something very similar in what is happening around the egalitarian prayer space in the Western Wall. 
Um, and there's an understanding, I think, that um, some of the things that uh, many parts of the American Jewish community find troubling about the direction of American society as reflected in the Trump administration are finding similar things in Israel and are engaging Israel differently. Um, I've taken Shasniks around. Uh, you should I, explain what a Shasnik, Shasnik is. are the ultra-Orthodox Svardic. I've taken John McCain and Lindsey Graham around. Uh, these are people who are not necessarily predisposed to agree with me. And I don't believe, uh, you know, they are not Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, you know, transformed into Paul. Um, they walk away with their ar ideological armor pierced and very pensive. You know, and that's fine with me. I don't expect somebody, you know, the the the... the contributor who will get on a chair and start clapping wildly in uh, uh, Kansas City uh, at a UJA function of that the undivided Jerusalem is easily caricatured as the you know Jewish version of the American tourist in Hawaii with a luau in his shirt and whatever okay um, unfair this comes from decent and honorable places. It's misdirected. And what's required is to transform a genuine love of Jerusalem and Israel from a teenage infatuation into a mature love. And that's what my tours try to do. I mean, this is not a, a laundry list of Israeli uh, inequities and sins. Yeah, we have sinned. But it's also a place that resonates deeply with our history, recent and biblical. I see what the settlers of Silwan and the city of David C. as Ir David being the cradle of our civilization. I fault them for being blind for the contemporary realities. Um, and I, I think that uh, a vast majority of Israelis and uh, American Jews see that. It's also interesting doing it with the Palestinians. You know, the most difficult tour that I ever gave. You mean you're talking about the diaspora Palestinians? Uh, also local mm. Palestinians. The most difficult tour I ever gave uh, was a, a group of 18, 19 kids, 15, 16 years old, all from Jerusalem, half Israeli, half Palestinian, during the peak of the Second Intifada. And you have to show them geopolitical Jerusalem in a way that they will both listen to you where they're completely incompatible narratives. They both listened. Uh, they walked away. Um, I think, disturbed and thoughtful, not nearly as exhausted as I was. It mm -hmm. was it was grueling. Uh, but that's the major test. Can you tell the same story to the residents of the same city at the core of a conflict like this simultaneously at the same time and be listened to by both? That gave me some measure of hope. Uh, Danny Seidman, thank you for this conversation. Uh, I found it fascinating. And uh, for all of you who are listening, please uh, watch out at fmep.org uh, for future installments of this podcast, which is called Occupied Thoughts, Realities of Israel, Palestine, and Peace. The podcast was produced by Chad Bernhard. We're very grateful for his help. I'm Peter Beinart. Thank you. Thank you.